0: Now y'all know you're in trouble when I've had two weeks, right, to prepare. I feel like a yeah, I, I feel like a horse at the gate, you know what I'm saying? My batteries are fully charged. And I will say again, for those of you that weren't here Wednesday, thank you very much for providing for our trip. It was full of wonder, and it was wonderful. So thank you very much. And you just might hear some things from that conference and what we talk about today. It's just to be anybody ever heard of Louis Giglio? Yep. Yeah. He's a great speaker, great communicator. He tells a story of a semester when he was in college when he took geography and he had a group project on Mount Rainier. And you say, okay, big deal, right? Well, when Louie tells a story, and you need to look it up online because he, he just does so well with it. I want to share with you part of what happened. But in typical Giglio style, he, he tells of his love for maps and all things geographical. So while his four partners were just hoping to get through the semester and, and finish the project, he was giddy. He was excited. He was like, asking the librarian, can I take the maps home? Can I, can, I, can I take them and look at them? And he said it was just like a dream. That's these big three foot by three foot topographical maps. And he's like, I'm just salivating over them. And he's like, I just told the other four guys, I'll do the project. Don't, don't sweat it. I'll get it done and it'll be great. And he said, I learned so much about Mount Rainier. He said, I just loved it. And he said, I really just kind of felt like I was kind of worshiping Mount Rainier and he was just so excited about Mount Rainier and everything was Mount Rainier and he learned every single detail about Mount Rainier that he could possibly learn. And he said, when the test came on Mount Rainier, he was disappointed because it was only multiple choice and a few fill in the blanks. So he proceeded to finish it in just a few minutes, then turned it over and wrote on the back of the test paper all the things he knew about Mount Rainier that the professor didn't ask him on the test. And he said he wrote in very little tiny print cuz so he could fit it all on there. He said he ended up like with like 118% on the test. He said, you know, that was that was too easy. He was infatuated with Mount Rainier. He loved Mount Rainier. This is in Georgia. Now where is Mount Rainier? It's in Washington, Washington state. So he'd never seen Mount Rainier, but he loved Mount Rainier. And then one summer, he and a friend of his took a cross-country trip to see America. Camping at national parks and seeing the country a sight at a time. And their journey finally took them to Washington State where Mount Rainier was. Louis said he had a plan to stun his traveling companion and any onlookers with his vast knowledge about Mount Rainier when they got to an overlook on the mountain. He had it planned out. Had his presentation planned out, he was going to wow them. He was ready down to rehearsing the dramatic pause to build excitement for his soon-to-be-famous presentation on Mount Rainier while they were on Mount Rainier. When they got to the overlook, Louis said he grabbed the split rail fence near the edge of the mountain and breathed in to begin his presentation. But something happened. As he looked out at the majesty of Mount Rainier... He began to cry. In his words, not like a man cries, but like a woman cries. (laughs) He said the quiver started in his chin and the emotions mushroomed until he was literally sobbing. No words, no dazzling facts, just sobs and tears and deep heaving breaths. After several minutes of weeping... Louis walked to the car, got in crying and sat there until his friend came to the car, got in and they wordlessly drove to the campsite for the night. In his tent that night he said he realized what had happened was the perfect illustration of knowing about something and experiencing something in all of its glory. He had known about Mount Rainier in depth and detail but when he actually experienced it It undid him. What he had known about, he did not know. And once he did know, he was not prepared for what it would do to him. You might see where I'm going with this, right? We have reached a point in Romans where we have seen a lot, so, so much. The Holy Spirit has spent what we have broken down into 11 chapters of wonderful, powerful, if it weren't in the Bible, it would be unbelievable doctrine. Now we're going to review this sweeping doctrinal treatise today and hopefully end up where Paul ends up in Romans 11 in verses 33 through 36. Hopefully we end up where he ends up and that place is worship. Worship. Right understanding of doctrine should lead us to heartfelt, impassioned worship. Theology should lead us to doxology. And that's exactly what we see here in Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36. Now, we're going to read 33 through 36. And if you were here Wednesday, you know this. If you weren't here Wednesday, you don't know this. We're going to spend today on the word "O." So we'll read all four verses, but we're just going to get through one word today. You say, what? Trust me. Would you stand for the reading of the Word? And would you receive, church, the very Word of God? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. God, You are really, really, really big. I pray that You would stun us with wonder this morning. And that we would be left with a worshipful oh. And that our lives would be spent in a worshipful oh. Holy Spirit, have your way in your people through the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I might have been stretching the truth a little. When I said that we'd only be looking at O today, we're actually um, we're going to look back and we're actually going to review chapters 1 through 11 and end up at O. O. So, and again, some of you might have realized I said it Wednesday, but a lot of the song, all the songs, all of the songs had O in them. We'll talk about that too. I'm not trying to be clever. I'm not trying to baffle you with brilliance. I just want you to get the connection. But we're going to look back on the book in sections and then we're going to look back on the book as a whole, the book of Romans, to see why Paul responds with this shining doxology. And then next week and maybe one more week, we might take two weeks on these last four verses, but at least next week. But we'll start with the immediate context and then work our way back through the book in order... To see the reason for His reaction. So let's dive in here. First, I want to look at that first word of our our passage today which is O. O O-H or it could just be O. Why why I want to do this is I want to set the mindset of what we're dealing with. The word is O and it may seem silly to focus on this word but I think it's important to see what we need to see today. Again, the word in English is O-H or O, and the word in Greek is the letter Omega. O. Omega, And we say it all the time, but what does it mean? What is the word O-O-O-O? What is its purpose in the language? Now, if you're old enough or lucky enough to be familiar with Schoolhouse Rock, you might remember the sketch they did on, what was it? Interjections. Interjections. What did Schoolhouse Rock say about interjections? Because O oh is an interjection. Here's a sample. Interjections, well, show excitement. oh, or emotion. Hey! They're generally set apart from a sentence by an exclamation point or by a comma when the feeling's not as strong. So when you're happy, hooray! Or sad. Oh, Or frightened, eek! Or mad, rats. Or excited, wow! Or glad, hey! An interjection starts a sentence right. So Paul was obviously familiar with Schoolhouse Rock (laughs) by some miracle intervention of the Holy Spirit. And he said, I need an emotional word to start this sentence off right. I need to let the readers know that I am deeply affected by what I've written so far and I need to bring attention to what I'm about to say. So going back to the interjection list, what would work best? Hooray! The depth. No, that don't work. Hey! No. Eek! No. Eek! The depth and the riches and wisdom and no. Rats. Now that don't work either. How about wow? That ain't bad, but maybe not. How about oh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That works. And what oh does, it brings emphasis and it shows excitement, emotion, and even an understanding of it in a way. Oh. We were talking at the house the other night and something was not heard right. And when it was understood what was finally said, somebody said, oh, that's what you said. Oh. So there's an understanding involved but not just understanding. Now we sang all those songs this morning that had "o" in them. Think about them with me for a minute. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh! Now I can make the statement that Jesus shows deep, deep love. Jesus has and shows deep, deep love. That's fine, but add O to it. O the deep, deep love of Jesus. The O adds an element of both comprehension of it and marvel at it. How about how He loves? How He loves us so. Well, that's good, but O how He loves us so. That's even better. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That's really nice, but O... How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. It's saying, yes, there is a lavish love, but oh, how it affects me. Lord, you are glorious. That's really good. But oh, Lord, you are glorious. That's even better. It's not just a syllable filler for the right meter of the song, but it soars with deeper emotion. And finally, you can ask death. Where is your sting? And you'd be right to say that, but man, when you throw in, Oh, death, where is your sting? Ah, now you're kind of up in death's face. Saying, not only can you not hurt me, but oh, you can't touch me because of the finished work of Jesus. So much is added by simply adding in that wonderful interjection, oh. The New Testament uses the interjection O oh, or O oh, 47 times to add flavor and boldness to things. You'd think it was a spice, right? Jesus used it a lot when He would say things like, O oh, you of little faith or O oh, faithless and twisted generation. And why He did that It was to show marvel at the state of the people who in His estimation should know or do better than they did. Others used it when they addressed people who were in positions of power or social status higher social status than them, like Paul addressing King Agrippa, Acts 26, 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. It's also used when people address God the Father or God the Son to show wonder and awe when people and angels and demons would say things like, Matthew eight twenty nine. a demon says, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Peter would say to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So it's used in several different ways, both in our culture and in the first century. And it's a strong magnifier or amplifier. Oh! So now the question has to be, why does Paul start this passage with it? Why does Paul start with O? Why O here? First thing we have to do is look back at the immediate context. Okay, In Romans 11, which we're finishing up, Paul has been addressing the strangely magnificent thought that God is going to, at some point in the future, turn His attention and affection back to the nation of ethnic Israel and save them. That's the most immediate thing that's just happened before this. He said that God had hardened Israel, God had cut them off, and God had grafted the wild olive shoot of the Gentiles into the tree of the covenant promises of God. But. Paul also pointedly said that the hardening that the Jews were experiencing was both partial and temporary. It was for a specific time and a specific purpose. They were hardened for their unbelief, yes, but also so that God could turn to the Gentiles and bless all the nations of the earth like He had promised Abraham He would do back in the covenant God made with Abraham. And in chapter 11, Romans 11, Paul urged the Gentiles to not elevate themselves above their Jewish brethren or even the unbelieving Jews, Because God was able to graft them back in if they do not continue in their unbelief. So Paul was hopeful and even worshipful at the concept that God would again deal with and draw in Jews. Now why was this important to Paul? Well, if you'll remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, which 9 through 11 is a section in and of itself, kind of a self-contained unit. That's not true. It's not self-contained. But it's one thought pattern, one flow of thought. Back at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul said he was in great sorrow and unceasing anguish over what? Over the state of his kinsmen according to the flesh or more specifically the Jews. He knew that they had been cut off and that they had rejected their Messiah and he said he would be willing to cut himself off, literally sent to hell if it meant that the Jews could be saved. And as important as that was to him, He was also equally or maybe even more so concerned that it would appear that something more fearful had happened. Romans 9, 6 and 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named." Paul makes it clear that the lack of Jews in the plan of God at the time of his writing did not, did not mean that God's Word, God's covenant was annulled. Quite the opposite. And from there, from the beginning of chapter 9, we set out on the exploration of the operation of God and election and predestination from eternity past and how His plan had never included every single descendant of Abraham, but rather those whom had been chosen like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob. Romans 9.16 clearly says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That should perk up your ears. That should make you think about the end of chapter 11 where it's said in 11.32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Now when you couple those two verses up, You see that God has mercy and wants to have mercy and His plan of salvation isn't dependent on human will but it is dependent on His mercy and that's why He consigned all to disobedience so that He could show mercy on whomever He chose to show mercy to. So God's plan was for God to choose whom He would set His mercy on and make it so that all were disobedient so that His mercy could be magnified and marveled at. Oh! His mercy. But why do people need to have mercy? Who needs mercy? And how does all that work? Well, that takes us back to chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 8 and then back through chapters 9 through 11 again. You ready for that? Okay, let's leave then. See y'all later. It's been nice being with you. I don't care if you're ready or not. Here we go. Who needs mercy? Well, like we said after seeing what we've seen already, all have been consigned to disobedience. So we all need mercy. And what we saw in the first point of our outline of Romans starting in chapter 1 going through 320 was sin, the need for being right with God. Now can you remember that far back? It's been a while, hasn't it? After introducing his letter with a brief greeting which explained who he was and how he felt about the gospel where he says in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith." After that, Paul showed us our need for the gospel. Everybody's need for the gospel. And how did he start this process? He started by talking about the wrath of God. Now, let me ask you real quick. When you start a gospel presentation, where do you start? God loves you. you better be real careful. you got to know what you're being saved from before you can ask people if they know that they need to be saved. Do people need to be saved from God's love? No. They need to be saved from the wrath of God. So where does Paul start his gospel presentation? The wrath of God. The wrath of God. And he says that the wrath of God is coming in the future and is already being seen to some extent now. He says in Romans... I'm in the wrong verse. I should have put one, 118 there. Let me read what it says. I'm sorry about that. He says in 118, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." God's wrath is seen in God, letting men go their own way, do their own thing, and worship the creature rather than the Creator." And that wrath led to them being given up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, given up to dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And then in chapter 2, he moved from rebellious flesh to religious flesh where people thought they were exempt because they were playing a religious game. But they were actually doing what the other people were condemned for. Actually, they were doing what they were condemning other people for doing. These religious folk were actually called to be presuming on the kindness of God and having a hard and impenitent heart and were condemned along with the blatant sinners. Whether an individual had the law of God like the Jews or not, like the Gentiles, each one will be judged on the basis of their works. Did you hear what I just said? Everybody will be judged on the basis of their works. You say, well, I didn't think it was about works. Everybody will be judged on the basis of their works. Crap. And to this point, everybody's works have been shown to be sinful. Romans 3:10 says none is righteous. No. Not one. And while the Jew might say they have the law, 3.20 points out, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So you say, well, it's about works, so I better keep the law. No. By the works of the law no human being will be justified in his, God's, sight. Because what does the law do? The law simply shows us sin. Sin gives us a knowledge of sin. So I'm going to be judged according to my works, but you're telling me I better not try to keep the law right. Because all the law does is points us to our need for a Savior because it shows us our great sin. So the Jew who would point and say, well, we're, we're God's people, God's law. How are you doing with that? Well, I grew up in a, in a good Christian church and I'm, I'm good in my fundamentals and I know what's going on. I've got a chart at home and all these good things and, and so I'm doing pretty good. That's not the works that you're going to be judged according to. That's trying to please God through the law. And by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Hmm. So that's where the first point of our outline ended. Then we started in 321 looking at our second point, which is justification by faith. The means for being right with God. Hmm. All are under sin with no hope of any law to save them. So then point two comes in talking about justification by faith. And that being the means for being made right with God. And man, he just comes out of the chute. In the first part of this second point of the outline, listen to this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. I think we should look at that and say, oh, (laughs) wow. Oh. Let me just kind of touch on some of the clauses that were mentioned in that passage I just read. "Apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, all have sinned, justified by His grace as a gift, and on and on." And this is where we started looking into Asian Station. Anybody remember Asian Station? I wonder if anybody could give me Asian Station from start to finish in order. I would, I would be super impressed. I couldn't, I couldn't do it, by the way. But, boop, looky there, whoop. Asian Station. Expiation <coughs> was God taking the guilt of our sin through the exit. Expiation takes it away from us, the guilt of our sin taken away. Propitiation, which we just read, which is God pouring the wrath for and against our sin. Onto the person of Christ. Jesus Christ became a propitiation for us, and God propitiated us, propitiated Himself in the person of Christ when He punished our sins in the person of Christ. Propitiation means Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. So He took the guilt of my sin away, He punished literally my sins in Christ, and then imputation. Oh, without imputation, there is no gospel. An imputation is both. I was imputed the sin of Adam. Remember that way back when? We all sinned in Adam is what it said. Therefore all have sinned. But that's not the end of the imputation equation. The end of the imputation equation is I am imputed or I am given the very righteousness of Christ. He's taken the guilt of my sin away. He's punished my sins in Christ. And not only did He punish my sins, He gave me the very righteousness of Christ. That's imputation. So God sees me as holy and as blameless and as righteous as Jesus is. That's why we glory in this table. We remember and we proclaim His death because His death was our death. His righteousness is now our righteousness. That's imputation and it leads us to a state of justification. And here I stand in the presence of God, rightfully so. I have been justified. I have reason, full reason, true reason to stand in the presence of God in the very righteousness of Christ. I have been justified. And that was a judicial proclamation. The gavel swung. God said, Justify. And here I stand. Which sets us on the process of sanctification, which is where we progressively become more and more like Jesus, given his righteousness already, holy and fully. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. His righteousness is my righteousness. Sanctification is the process of working out what God has already worked into me. Where I become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus through the process of my life. Does sanctification mean that I never sin again? Quite the contrary. Sanctification is the process of God pointing out my sin and saying, See, yeah, that right there. You shouldn't do that anymore. Why? Because I love you. And I want something better for you. And I've given you the righteousness of Christ. I want you to walk in that, not your sin. That's sanctification and salvation. Before eternity passed, in the heart and mind of God, I was saved. At one point in time, I was saved. And one day, I will stand in the presence of God and be saved. That's salvation. Asian station. Yeah, we might need to revisit that. Well, that's pretty stinking good. And that's not mine. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's Paul's. It's, it's Romans is what it is. So when we talk about these things, these great things, expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, sanctification, salvation, so much powerful truth there. And when we talk about being justified by faith, which is the only means for being right with God, we have to part there. We have to look there. We have to camp there. And remember what God has done for us through this process that we call Asian Station. And so from 321 to the end of chapter 4, we saw these things paraded before us in and through doctrinal statements about faith and the need for it in the circumcised and the uncircumcised. We saw examples in the lives of Abraham and David and Jesus as our righteousness and our justification. And oh, what truths they are. Oh, what beautiful, powerful truths. And then something happened, y'all. We came to point three. Blessings. The results of being right with God. Chapters 5 verse 1 through 8, 39. And oh my goodness. <laughs> From five, one, the very beginning, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the way through 8, 37 to 39, which said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now those are a couple of really good bookends for this point of our outline that we're calling blessings, the results of being right with God. (laughs) <laughs> Through this process, we saw colossal, life-changing truths that literally should impact the very breath we breathe every day. And we don't have time to cover it all. And we spent six or eight months trying to cover it all. <laughs> so I'm not going to try to do it in 20 minutes, okay? But let me just kind of give you some things that are pulled out of this section from 5.1. To eight thirty nine. I'm just going to kind of popcorn them through here, and I want you to listen with your oh ears. Oh, listen! Some of the blessings we have since we have been made right with God, peace with God, access by faith into grace, the ability to rejoice in our sufferings, hope. God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We are justified by His blood. We are saved by Him from the wrath of God. We have reconciliation. We have the free gift of God. Christ's act of righteousness led to our righteousness. We have eternal life. We are dead to sin. We have newness of life. We died and we rose with Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are not under the law but under grace. We are obedient from the heart. We are set free from sin. We are becoming slaves of righteousness. We are dead to the law. We are married to Christ. And we are being able to bear fruit for God. And there's so much more. But we have to truncate it for time's sake so that we can have lunch at noon. (laughs) And then we saw at the end of chapter 7. We spent a lot of time at the end of chapter 7. I don't know if you all remember or not. I do. We saw at the end of chapter 7 that in the midst of all this, we still have sin living in our flesh. But even that can't disqualify us from receiving all these blessings. Even when we do what we don't want to do, even when we don't do what we want to do, we have a sure hope. And we see that at the end of chapter 7 and into the first part of chapter 8. I'm going to read it as one unit. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Oh! Always now. And then chapter 8. The great 8 which we said was the peak of the Everest-ish mountain that is the book of Romans. In a world filled with groanings and longings for final redemption, we have a hope that though unseen is as sure as the air we breathe. And so we wait for our final adoption that will be realized on the last day when all things are made right. And until then, the Spirit intercedes for us and we know that that whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then this. And I'm going to read it again with a little bit more. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Words fail. Paul said that in Romans 8. That the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I kind of understand that a little better now. Can't communicate what I'm feeling. I can't communicate what I'm thinking. All I can do is say, oh. The blessings. The results of being made right with God. Then we come to point four. Sovereignty and who is right with God? Which we've already talked about today. But in this point we saw the sovereignty of God in election and predestination for Jews and Gentiles in chapter 9. We saw man's responsibility in chapter 10. And we belabored the point that the two are not antithesis, the two are not against each other, the two are friends, the two go hand in hand on God's plan of salvation, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And then in chapter 11 we saw God's future plans for the Jews. And here we land today at Romans 11.33 with the word O. But my question to you, I want you to ask yourself and I want you to be honest with yourself. What is your reaction to Romans chapters 1 through 11? Is it O? Or is your reaction, well, yeah, but... Or maybe your reaction is, well, that's not what that means. Maybe your reaction is, whatever. Maybe your reaction is, well, I don't think God would ever do that. Or maybe your reaction is, well, that's not what I believe. (laughs) Or maybe God shouldn't do it that way. Or some other variant of accusation or disbelief or understatement of all that we've just seen. I believe we live in an age of misplaced understatement. I believe we can read Romans chapters 1 through 11 and say, Okay, I get it. I understand. Yeah, that makes sense. And what we have just done is understated the Word and the power of God in such a way that we explain it away and it has absolutely, positively, zero impact on our lives. Now listen, I'm an emotional guy. I get it. And some people aren't quite as emotional as I am, expressive as I am. And maybe you can sit and read that and in the deep, dark recesses of your hearts go, that's beautiful. Okay. But I'm telling you what, if we can read this, if we can listen up my words, Lord no If we can read these first 11 chapters of Romans or any part of the Bible for that matter, and not stand in awe and wonder of a God who has recorded this for us in order that our lives may be changed. If we can read that and not go, oh, I would ask us to evaluate ourselves, not in a condemning way, not in a beat yourself up type of way, but church, I am calling us, I am calling me, I'm calling us all to a sense of wonder, to marvel. At not just a Bible. The Bible is wonderful. The Bible is Providence Bible Church. Bible's Bible is important. But that that Bible would turn our gaze to the person of God. And that we would see Him. And that we would be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people who have unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. And who who am I to stand here and gaze upon this beautiful, wonderful, marvelous God in the light and in the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He did for us. Oh, we can come up here. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Oh, Jesus died for me. But do you understand that? Are you moved with wonder that the God of the universe laid His life down for you? That the God of the universe spilled His blood for your sins? And that if you will place your faith in His finished work, you will be born again? To a hope everlasting, where you will worship Him throughout eternity with an ever-expanding capacity to know and love and worship Him. Ball game's on in a little bit. You better hurry, preacher. Come on, church. What is wrong with us? I can't remember. The last time I sat in front of the Bible and gazed into the face of God and said, Oh God, you are mighty. Oh Lord, you are glorious. Oh Lord, you are victorious. My life. We're so cold and so calloused and so busy and so tiny minded. We don't want anything that's going to challenge us. How many of you scroll through Facebook and if somebody posts an article, if it's more than like three paragraphs, you I ain't got time for that. That Russell Moore thing was just a behemoth. Lord, that took 16 minutes to read. And I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to call you to wonder. I'm trying to call you to stop and open up your eyes and behold wondrous things from the Word of God. So that you can look on the face of God and say, Ho, oh, oh, ho. Oh. Do you find yourself on the mountain, unable to marvel and glory at the majesty before you? rolling your eyes and saying, well, I've seen all this before. Nothing new here. Why do we have to review this again? Can we just not get through Romans chapter 11? Good Lord. Dear friends, we do not need new truth. (laughs) We need to marvel at the clear, plain, old truths that we've seen. We need a heart that will... oh. At the very mention of the book of Romans, or a heart that will owe at the very mention of the Bible as a whole. We need a heart that will owe at the person of God. We need a heart that will owe at the people of God. Church. Oh, I gotta get up and go to church. I got so much I gotta get done today. It's snowing, it's cold. I don't know. You know what? I really don't like some of the stuff they do with that church anyway. They get on my nerves. All that liturgy at the beginning, it's so formal. That guy talks for an hour. I'm not trying to pat Providence Bible Church on the back. We're not right about everything. We're wrong about a lot. I'm sure we are. But we do need a heart that will owe at the thought of being with the people of God. We need eyes full of light and glory that are entranced at the beauty of the truth of God and His salvation and that He has given as a free gift by His grace in His complete sovereign election salvation to His people. We need to bow our lives in worship in light of undeserved, unearned mercy and grace after having been consigned to disobedience and displaying the sin deep in our hearts over and over and over again. I said earlier that theology should lead to doxology and doctrine should lead us to worship. So I have one application point for today. Worship. Worship. And I'm not talking about singing songs only. That is a very small part of your worship. We're going to see in chapter 12 that true worship is life. It's husbands and wives and kids and bosses and having your mind renewed and transformed. About being obedient to authorities. It's about honoring government. Yeah, that's worship. Yes, we sang this morning over the rulers of nations, Jesus reigns. It's worship. So, our application point this morning is worship as a verb. Do worship. Live worship. Breathe worship. Think worship. Live a life that is constantly saying Oh! Oh God! Oh the Bible! Oh the church! Oh eternity! Oh heaven! Oh my sin! Oh, your heart out in response to all of this. Stop what you're doing in your life and worship God for who He is. Worship God for what He has done. Worship God for what He is doing and worship God for what He will do. You may think you have all the answers. You may think you know all the information, but what I'm asking you to do today is to give up on the prepared speeches and the recitations of facts that are not impacting your life. Give all that up and absorb the immense, amazing, unimaginable scope of what we've seen today. Stop saying, yeah, I've heard it all before and could easily pass a test on these facts. And start saying with fear, Trembling and rejoicing. Oh, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how great is your amazing grace. Oh, Lord, you are glorious. And oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Oh, yes. Oh, let's pray. God, we're going to see next week, (laughs) should you tarry, that your ways are past finding out. And we cannot fathom the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Your ways are inscrutable. Your judgments are unsearchable. God, I ask that you would help us to not try to conform you to our image. But I pray that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. That we would be made more like you and we will never be God. We are the creature. You are the creator. We are the clay and you are the one who has formed us. May we never accuse you. God, if at all possible, may we never doubt you. And may we always worship you with a heart that is filled with oh and awe. And God, this takes deep, abiding, Holy Spirit empowered work in our lives. And that's what we ask for. God, convict us of our sins. And may we confess them and forsake them and repent of them so that we can look at you in the beauty and the splendor of your holiness and be arrested once again. God, may we never come to this table again with a ho-hum. This is what we do on Sunday morning attitude. But God, may we come in fear and in trembling and in rejoicing knowing that this is our proclamation of the death of Jesus Christ until He comes again. God, I pray that this week would see a renewed interest and fervent joy in Your Word for Your people. Not reading the Bible because we have to, but hearing the very voice of God because we get to. Oh God, make us little children. Jesus, You said, unless we become like little children, we will in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. May we glory in You, Lord. May we rejoice in You. May we wonder at who You are and what You've done. Give us hearts that will worship You, God. And may those hearts empower us to live lives that are worship to You. We need Your help. We are sinners. And at the same time, we are justified. God, if there are those here this morning who do not know you, who are lost and who are under your wrath, God, would you speak to them by the power of your Holy Spirit through the word that has been spoken and show them that the only hope they have for salvation is to place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh and who is God in the flesh seated in heaven reigning and ruling over all and yet who bore our sins upon His body on a cross in first century Palestine. But He didn't stay dead. He came back to life and He ascended on high and He will reign forevermore. God, may they place their faith, their hope, their trust in Him. Justification by faith, the only means for being right with God. Given as a gift, a gift of Your grace, God. May people receive it this morning and may you be glorified as they receive it, God. And God, as we go to eat food, your word tells us whether we're eating or drinking or any such thing to do all things to the glory of God. May we talk and fellowship and eat and enjoy food and each other and you in this afternoon. And again, God, may the glory be yours. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand to receive a benediction, a good word spoken over you and us as we conclude our time together. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.